Good morning, and thanks for tuning in to China Takes Over the World. I am Ying Ma. President Barack Obama is in Asia this week, and on his itinerary are Malaysia, the Philippines, South Korea, and Japan. He won't be visiting China, but no doubt China will be a major focus of the discussions he will have with leaders in the region. With us to discuss President Obama's trip, Sino-American relations, and China's relations with his neighbors,、uh, with its neighbors, that is,、uh, is Professor、uh, Shen Dingli, Executive. Dean of the Institute of International Studies and director of the Center for American Studies at Fudan University in Shanghai. Uh, uh, could I in, in, interrupt? Yes,、you? yes.、Uh, I am now、uh, the associate dean, not executive dean. Oh, I, I, well, well, pardon me. <laughs> so, yeah, Professor Shen、uh, is.、Uh, yeah, I have some change. I, I am I'm less important, and, uh, <laughs> and I'm, I'm no longer the director of Center for American Studies. I'm just a professor. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry to, to, dis,、uh, to disrupt you. Oh no, 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 no worries. Well, first of all, let us say good morning and welcome to you. And and as far as we know, you are still、uh, a very important guest, whatever your title is. <laughs> and we're pleased、uh, to have you. you on the show. Obama's in China, in Asia to underscore U.S. commitment to the region and to show that America's pivot to Asia is real.、Um, is Beijing alarmed by the pivot, and does it see it as an effort to contain China? Well, depending upon what the substance is,、uh, Beijing is、uh, attached、uh, a great importance to、uh, President Obama's uh, uh, so-called pivoting or rebalancing、uh, strategy toward Asia, and.、Uh, uh, But I think、uh, personally, I take it uh, uh, rather seriously, as uh, uh, it is a rebalancing both、uh, on the rise of China and also、uh, on various factors that affect the stability of、uh, Asia's、uh, overall situation. So it could also be a rebalancing China, rebalancing Japan, etc., and also how to rebalance the alliance the U.S.、Uh, has made. Uh, between Japan and uh, uh, South Korea, because uh, uh, Japan's certain action has also、uh, disrupted Americans' American-centered、uh, alliance. Right. So, so South Korea and Japan actually haven't been getting along all that well in recent years.、Um, you wrote a piece for ForeignPolicy.com last year, telling the U.S. to mind its own business.、Um, but it, it's China's neighbors, especially those with whom it has territorial disputes,、um, who have been actually clamoring for a much more robust U.S. presence in. In the Asia Pacific region,、uh, do you think China has contributed to its neighbor's sense of alarm with its own territorial ambitions? Well,、uh, it's a, a quite complicated uh, concerning uh, these uh, disputes,、uh, particularly in South、uh, China Sea.、Uh, there is an overlapping claim right, between right. China and uh, uh, some of its uh, uh, maritime neighbors, and uh, between uh, these uh, neighbors amongst themselves. For instance. Uh, uh, Philippines has some uh, uh, overlapping claim with Malaysia, etc. So all these have complicated roots.、Uh, China considers that uh, uh, other claimants have uh, occupied uh, those small islands and rocks in South China Sea, and uh, uh, other claims consider that China is stealing their fish in their exclusive economic zone. And uh, uh, so all these are complicated. And、uh, but the small countries want America,、uh, the Central M,、uh, to come to the region to back them. Therefore, they would feel、uh, beefed.
Well, you know, as you say, all of these claims are are very complicated and and different parties have overlapping claims. But one of um, the disputes that's gotten a a lot of attention is the standoff between China and the Philippines at Scarborough Shoal. Um, And this happened in 2012. um, And the U.S. uh, mediated an agreement where vessels from both countries would leave um, the tense standoff and the Philippines actually complied, but then the Chinese side reneged on its word and stayed. So, um, you know, and, and this has uh, created a fair amount of controversy. Why didn't the Chinese side leave according to the agreement as well? Uh, well, Chinese idea is uh, Scarborough sure belong to China. And so at least we uh, are qualified to fish in the internal water of the Scarborough shore. But the Philippine side would think uh, China is not qualified to fish, at least uh, in the EEZ, exclusive economic zone of, South, uh, of the Philippines uh, side. And that applies to those water outside of the Scarborough shore. So they don't want China's vessel to come because this vessel could uh, uh, take the opportunity when Philippine uh, uh, a maritime guard would not be there, they would steal the fish outside of the shore. But the Chinese side would uh, make sure that uh, our vessel could steal fish in the internal water. Therefore, there may be some misunderstanding or some intentional provocation uh, for uh, 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 some side of uh, the disputes. So I regret for this. But, but do you think that, you know, the type of behavior we saw um, where the parties believed, both the Philippines and the U- U.S. believed that China had agreed to leave and a- a- along with the Philippines. And, and once the Philippines fulfilled its part of the pledge and when China did not leave, do you feel that that kind of behavior causes China's neighbors to clamor more for the U.S. to serve as a protector of, of the peace uh, in the region? Well, uh, let's... Uh uh, take another example, which is called called by uh, what the Chinese would call the Ren uh, Aijiao, or in English, Second Thomas Shore. Yes, yes, so that's uh, another that flashpoint. place, China considers that that place belongs to China. And the uh, Philippines told China that, that, that their worship uh, has been grounded in the place uh, unintentionally. Uh, it takes some time to leave. But uh, China considers that it's Philippines has spent some 20 years not to leave. And recently, Philippine side has stated that they granted their worship intentionally, and they don't want to leave. So China may think that the Philippines would repeat this strategy in granting another worship in Scarborough Shore. That I see. Because the, the worship they grounded uh, near the Second Thomas Shoal was there was grounded there in 1999, if I, I, I yes, remember correctly. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a 15 years ago. So Chinese side may uh, be upset. Philippines, now they admit they grounded this intentionally. And uh, they may uh, ground another worship uh, when China was not around Scarborough Shore. So China may have this kind of concern, and therefore our ship may not leave, even if a Philippines vessel uh, have left. So first, this may violate the uh, uh, 
the agreement. But second, as long as the Philippines was more uh, state openly that they granted their worship in second terms ashore intentionally, uh, that would more uh, uh, trigger China and not to respect the agreement that you have mentioned. We are uh, chatting with Professor Shen Dingli uh, of the uh, uh, Fudan University in Shanghai. Uh, we've seen Asian countries like Vietnam, the Philippines, India, and even China's longtime friend Cambodia draw closer to Japan in recent years. Um, Myanmar, another longtime friend of China's, has also been opening uh, opening itself up to the world and forming warmer ties with the U.S. Do you think China is the reason why many Asian countries are cozying up to Japan and the U.S.? And and is that a phenomenon that that um, is disturbing to policymakers in Beijing? Uh, let me say. Uh, all countries are sovereign and independent. They have a right to choose a country to work with. So first, it's America refused to work with Myanmar uh, in the past years. That has forced Myanmar to have no choice but to only work with China. But when the U.S. Uh, has opted for uh, improving its policy by working with Myanmar, first, China is happy. We are happy to see that Myanmar would have more choice. So I don't think Beijing would be upset that Myanmar uh, would turn to uh, India, to Japan, to America. But we firmly believe that uh, Myanmar would still need us. Uh, second, uh, we also know that uh, there are many, we have many friends. For instance, South Korea uh, is our number. We are South Korea's number one trade. The two sides... Uh, trust and relationship uh, are ever improving. Their president came to China. My president may come to South Korea this year. And uh, we have lots of common understanding in denuclearizing North Korea, in stabilizing the Korean Peninsula, in denouncing Japan's uh, negating its uh, previous uh, recognition of the wartime uh, atrocity. And uh, we have lots of common grounds. So you see that China can deal with South Korea well, China has been improving relationship with uh, India very well. We have made uh, the broad uh, defense cooperation agreement last year. So both countries patrol, share not uh, trail the other countries patrol around the border. That has fundamentally prevented uh, the kind of mutual charging of uh, conflict over the border area. So why China can improve relationship with India, with South Korea, and uh, with uh, other countries? We don't feel bad that Cambodia would have more friends. Why Cambodia share only work with China? They deserve to have more friends. It's other countries that used to isolate them. So simply because China has too many friends, has ever improving relationship with its neighbors, that has upset the others. For instance, America refused to go to uh, APEC in the last two years. That has hurt America's own soft power in working with the, uh, the France in the region. Uh, well, well I, it, it, I think America would say that it, they didn't refuse to go to APEC, but for a number, America for a couple of high-profile... American president uh, refused to go to Vladivostok two years ago and last year in Paris, uh, in, in Paris, Indonesia. He only sent the secretary. Of right, State. he he did, and 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 the re- and and the reason why he didn't go was because of uh, problems at home. But no, it, no matter <laughs> no matter what reason, we also have uh, ample reason not to send our our president. But we we made it. So we attach importance. 
So under China's pressure, small diplomacy, and China's rising soft power, America has to accept Myanmar. If China would not have a good, good relationship with Myanmar, why America improved? So America reflected, even if Myanmar has a military junta, even if Myanmar has various human rights problems, America need to work with this country. Sure, sure. So well, sure. Let's shift away from Myanmar for for for, for now. I mean, that, I was using that merely as an an, an example. Um, do, there's been a lot of talk about uh, China's peaceful rise, and lots of commentators have said that it appears that Beijing has abandoned that concept. Do you think that's the case? Uh, I don't think so. I think Beijing uh, still considers that uh, it. Uh, can benefit hugely through uh, its a peaceful rights strategy. And the, the making of UN Charter in 1945 has fundamentally this China and all any new rising country uh, to rise peacefully and successfully uh, through youth violence. So China considers that this is not the age of colonization. But there is some talk, rumors, and weakness that China is doing some kind of new colonialism. So the old colonialism is you send armed force to conquer country, and you leave the armed force, and then you take the natural resource to bully their people. Now China is spending money to buy resources regardless their human rights, their internal governance. So some countries, Western countries, feel bad. And some uh, Chinese trade partner may also feel bad. Why you spend money hurting our environment without respecting our human rights and also our uh, environmental protection? So China has indeed has uh, much room to improve. When you said that uh, why China uh, may have less friends, it's also true. Uh, take the same example like Myanmar. Uh, well, 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 Professor, we've got um, about 30 seconds left. If, if you don't mind, maybe I could ask you sure, one last sure. question. Do you think or do you think the folks in Beijing believe that the U.S. is a power in decline? Uh, there is debate. Uh, there are rising amount of Chinese to, who believe U.S. declining, but uh, uh, I may think that the U.S. Uh, has a strong ability uh, to reflect and to correct its mistake by sending force to Iraq, so U.S. can fix this and would rise again. We've been speaking with Professor uh, Shen Dingli um, of uh, the Fudan University in Shanghai. Professor Shen, uh, thank you very much. That was fascinating. Thank you very much. This is China Takes Over the World, and I am Ying Ma. Good morning. This is China Takes Over the World, and I am Ying Ma. We are delighted to welcome John Mearsheimer, the R. Wendell Harrison Distinguished Service Professor of Political Science at the University of Chicago. Professor, thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. An updated version of your book, The Tragedy of Great Power Politics, was released early this month. And in the concluding chapter, you argue that the rise of China is unlikely to be peaceful. Could you briefly tell us why? Well, I think that if China continues its impressive economic growth over the next 30 years, the way it has over the past 30 years, it will translate that economic might into military might, and it will try to dominate Asia the way the United States dominates the Western Hemisphere. It'll go to great lengths to make sure that it is the most powerful state in Asia by far, and it will try to push the United States 
uh, out of Asia, much the way the United States has a Monroe Doctrine in the Western Hemisphere and doesn't tolerate other great powers coming into its region of the world. So in effect, I think what China will try to do, and it would be smart to try to do this, in my opinion, uh, is dominate Asia. At the same time, the United States will go to great lengths to contain China and make sure that China does not dominate Asia. And in that enterprise, the United States will have lots of help from China's neighbors, which will have all sorts of reasons to fear China and join with the United States in a balancing coalition. And so in your view, conflict is inevitable, or I is think, likely to be inevitable. <laughs> well, let me put it uh, slightly differently. I think that an intense security competition like the one you saw between the United States and the Soviet Union during the Cold War is inevitable. But you want to remember that although we had an intense security competition between the superpowers, we never had a shooting war. So I would not argue that a shooting war involving China on one side and the United States on the other is likely. But I think it is certainly possible, and I think it's more likely than a shooting war was during the Cold War. Uh, well, some argue that if you look at China domestically, it's a complete mess. The economy is slowing. Ethnic minorities on the periphery are restive. Corruption is rampant. Popular discontent, popular discontent boils over in protests throughout the country every day. And the Communist Party has lost its legitimacy. And then the list of problems go goes on and on and on. Um, does this China sound like one that is in any position to really be expansionist and really challenge U.S. power? Um, in the Asia-Pacific. Well, what you're in effect asking is whether or not China will really grow uh, at an impressive rate over the next 30 years, and you're raising all sorts of reasons to think it might not. Uh, I've talked to people on both sides of this issue, and I find it very difficult to determine whether or not these problems will plague China to the point where its economic growth will slow down significantly. Uh, they're just people on either side who are very smart, and it's hard to uh, to reach a conclusion as to who's right. I hope, uh, given my views on what will happen if China does grow, that China's economy flatlines and it does not uh, grow at an impressive rate in the years ahead. Now, um, you mentioned earlier that the, um, that the strategy that the U.S. is most likely to, um, to employ against China is, is containment. What, what would that strategy look like? Is it going to – have you already given us a bit of a preview where, you know, the U.S. would hope for less economic growth in China um, along with taking all kinds of other steps that would contain, uh, contain its rise? Well, I don't think that a containment strategy would have much effect on China's economy. I mean, that's sort of outside the scope of, of containment. I think what a containment policy look, would look like is that the United States would put together an alliance structure in Asia uh, that would be designed to prevent China from expanding its influence in the region and certainly from pushing the Americans out of Asia. Uh, I think the balancing coalition would include Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, uh, India, uh, and Russia. And all of these countries would be deeply interested in making sure that China did not dominate Asia. Uh, I don't think we would be very offensively oriented. In other words, I don't think that the United States would be looking for opportunities to start a war or a conflict with China. 
On the contrary, I think we'd be trying to avoid that, in large part because both sides have nuclear weapons. But the goal here would be, uh, as it was in the Cold War, to prevent a rival superpower uh, from projecting power uh, beyond its borders. When U.S. Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel visited China earlier this month, um, his counterpart, uh, General uh, Chang Wanquan, declared that China can never be contained. Um, do you think that a U.S. strategy to contain China, much like the one you just described, um, do you think that would trigger angry reactions in Beijing that could actually lead to um, more conflict between the two countries and between China and its neighbors and give China fewer reasons to cooperate with the U.S. on areas that, that the two countries do need to work together, such as uh, um, uh, North Korea. Yes, I do. I think that uh, there's a tragic dimension to this situation, which is why I entitle my book, <laughs> The Tragedy of Great Power Politics. The fact is that the United States and China's neighbors really have no choice but to do everything they can to build up powerful military forces so that they can contain China. However, from Beijing's point of view, anything that the United States and its allies do uh, looks offensive in nature. For example, the United States will say that it's trying to contain China, but from China's point of view, this will look like encirclement. And any time the United States moves new military forces to Asia or Japan spends more money on defense, Beijing will interpret these moves as offensive in nature, not defensive in nature. And, of course, the United States, as it watches Beijing increase defense spending, will interpret that as offensive behavior, even though the Chinese will think they're acting defensively. So you're inevitably going to end up in this situation where the two sides arms race with each other and all of the uh, arms buildups on each side are going to look offensive in nature to the other side, and they're going to fuel that security competition and make war more likely. And again, this is a tragic situation, but in my opinion, it's virtually unavoidable. But if containment is the right strategy for the U.S. Uh, to employ against China, and if it is something that's um likely unavoidable. Why have successive U.S. presidents been so unwilling to embrace it? Well, what U.S. presidents do and what they say are two different things. Uh, we have this pivot to Asia, which is all about containment. And nevertheless, President Obama and his underlings all deny that it's uh, about containment. But it is about containment, and the Chinese are not fooled on this at all. They understand full well what's going on. We are speaking with Professor John Mearsheimer of the University of Chicago. Uh, Tom Donilon, a former national security advisor to President Obama, recently disputed this notion that the U.S. is trying to contain China. And um, and as you said earlier, what they say and what they do are two different things. But uh, Donilon wrote in the Washington Post recently, quote, the United States has a good deal of experience with containment and a $500 billion annual economic relationship does not resemble that strategy, unquote. Um, I mean, even if we accept that what they what the administration says and does are two different things, is it possible to contain China in the security realm while cooperating feverishly with it in the economic realm? Absolutely. And this is exactly what happened before World War One. Before World War One, you had in Europe a threat from Imperial Germany. 
And to deal with that threat, there was a triple entente that formed. It was France, Russia, and Britain. So France, Russia, and Britain formed an alliance, the triple entente, all for the purpose of containing Imperial Germany. That containment failed, and of course you got World War I 100 years ago in August of 1914. However, the key point is that you had a great deal of economic intercourse between Imperial Germany and Russia, Britain, and France. So they traded with each other, they engaged in all sorts of economic dealings, and they still went to war. So the fact that the United States and China's neighbors will continue to trade with China does not mean that there won't be an intense security competition. And for anybody who doubts that, all you have to do is look at the precedent before World War I. And I would argue the same thing is true in Europe before World War II, although the economic interdependence before World War II was not as great as it was before the First World War. So for... Obviously, there, as you say, there are those who feel that if we keep trading with China, then war is going to be much less likely. Um, even if we, uh, l- let's say we we are to um, uh, to say right here that that's uh, you know that that's his- history has shown that not to be the case. But as you mentioned earlier in this interview, um, in many ways, one one major aspect of China's strength is its economic growth. And so if the U.S. and its allies have decided that it is not going to impede that economic growth, wouldn't that sort of distract from the ability to contain China in the security realm? I think that's what my question was getting at. And and, and they knew the example you cited, the containment um, um, of Germany failed in that last example. Well, I don't think it'll have any effect on our ability to contain China. I think we can attempt to contain China. I think the key question is whether you think in a crisis where there's potential for war, that it will not happen. In other words, war will not break out because of the economic costs associated with doing that. Uh, And when you raise this issue, it's largely a function of how you think about the relationship between economics and politics. What you're arguing is that economic considerations will trump political considerations in a crisis. And there may be some occasions where that happens and the logic that you're spinning out holds. But there are lots of other cases one can point to where that will not be the case, where politics will trump economics. And the best example is the Senkaku Diao Islands today. Japan and China engage in all sorts of economic intercourse. Neither one of them has any interest in going to war. But nevertheless, it is possible to posit plausible scenarios where Japan and China end up shooting each other over these rocks. Oh, sure, sure, sure. I, I, I'm sorry. I, what I was, um, perhaps I didn't make myself clear. What I was trying to say was that um, that China, that China, much like other countries, derives its political and military strength from its economic strength. So the more that its economy grows, the the more powerful it gets in in the other realms, or, or at least it would be logical to assume so. Um, but right. but so perhaps- there's no there's no question that when the United States and China's neighbors trade with China and help it to become wealthier, they are in effect creating a Goliath that they're later going to have to contain. Right, indeed, indeed, and that was what I was trying to get at. Um, l- let me ask you something else. So. Um, 
if the U.S. is going to contain China regardless of Chinese behavior, because in, in your in the scenarios that you've laid out, this is in fact this is inevitable.、Um, why should China try to behave more responsibly? Why should it become what、um, Robert Zelik, a former、um, uh, Deputy Secretary of State in the Bush administration, you know, used to、um, used to call for China to become a responsible stakeholder? Why should China actually want to aspire to that if the U.S. is going to contain it regardless? Well, the key here is to distinguish between the short term and the long term.、Uh, China has no interest in the short term in stirring up trouble, in large part because it's not that powerful militarily or economically. Time is on China's side, assuming that it continues to grow economically. So it's in China's interest to wait a good ten, twenty, maybe even thirty years. Uh, till its economy is much more powerful than it is today, and its military is far more powerful than it is today, and then throw its weight around and try to settle disputes. Just take the East China Sea. The, the Chinese don't want to try to settle、uh, the disputes regarding、uh, who controls the East China Sea at this point in time because they're not powerful enough to contest the United States in a serious way. In twenty or thirty years, assuming their economy continues to grow, they'll be far more powerful, and they'll be in a much better position to dictate the terms of a settlement. So, for the time being, the Chinese have a great incentive to appear and indeed to act as responsible stakeholders. And then, when they get powerful enough, they can dictate the terms in the various disputes, like Taiwan, the East China Sea, and the South China Sea. Uh, we have been speaking with Professor John Mearsheimer of the University of Chicago. Professor, thanks very much for chatting with us. It was my pleasure. This is China takes over the world, and I am Ying Ma.